This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by Wilmington Healthcare. Wilmington Healthcare helps customers turn high-quality healthcare data into meaningful intelligence that supports their business objectives and the improvement of healthcare. Wilmington Healthcare's trusted, in-depth and compliant data, backed up by world-class delivery platforms and unrivaled UK healthcare expertise, enables NHS supplier organisations to achieve sustainable outcomes and improve competitive advantage. Visit www.wilmingtonhealthcare.com or contact them directly at info at wilmingtonhealthcare.com for more information. Welcome to this episode of the MedTalk podcast, discussing the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, editor of MedTech Innovation News. On this episode, I am joined by Glyn Barnes, director of strategic marketing at iRhythm, on the first anniversary of its Zero XT medical device receiving nice approval. We discuss going through the approvals process, advice for any companies ahead of the application process, and the effect nice approval has had on iRhythm. Uh, Glenn, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. Um, for those that don't know about uh, Zio and iRhythm, first of all, uh, because they probably haven't listened to a previous episode of this podcast, uh, can you just give us uh, a, a brief overview of yourselves? Sure. Um, well, iRhythm was created back in 2006, and uh, it was a, a very creative prof out of Stanford University who realized that the the current methodology of monitoring people who needed continuous ECG monitoring at home um, was really not great. It didn't provide good results and, and patients would often have to have repeat testing. So he came up with this idea and, and not to say, of course, the, the other issue is that it's, it's pretty cumbersome thing for patients to wear. They don't generally like it. So the compliance is poor too. So he came up with this idea, essentially, with the technologies that they had already developed uh, in Stanford, was that why not use a device that is small, discreet, and essentially sticks to the chest, just in the upper left-hand side of the chest here, and is is pretty much invisible to any other person. So you can wear your clothes, you can shower, you just carry on with your daily life. And he said, if we can come up with something like that that's continuous, and can last much longer, we will get far better compliance from the patient. And using now AI algorithms, we can actually get far better data and far more accurate data. And so they spent quite some time developing, as you can imagine. And there was obviously a prototype, and then finally they got an FDA approval, uh, and they started launching and, and selling the product in the US. Um, and essentially, that's where it came from, why the idea occurred. And, and then, obviously, in 2015, um, we launched here in the UK. Okay. I was just wondering if you could talk us through the NICE approval process itself, because I think it's been a year since this iteration of the product has um, has been approved. Can you, can you tell our audience how long it took to actually go through the process and explain what you had to go through to achieve it? Yes, it, it, yeah, I wasn't directly involved with the early days, but uh, it, it was a painful process, I have to admit, to begin with. And I think most companies would probably concur with that. 
Um, and in fact, we what we did, because we very quickly realized you really need specialist knowledge to, to get in through the door and, and know the various paths within NICE to actually make this work uh, from both sides of the fence, actually. Um, so we actually hired an external consultant that had that experience, and she still w works with us today, in fact, um, on various other things that have sub subsequently come about. So it was a long process, is what I'm saying. I think, essentially, it was probably the best part of two years, because the first application uh, was, was effectively rejected, as is often the case. And so because we simply hadn't given them enough data that they needed to make a, a, an absolute decision to give the guidance. And so we went through it again and uh, refined it, made sure we had all our, our T's crossed and I's dotted and then resubmitted. And that was when at the back end of last year, we finally got the approval and the nice guidance. And we actually are the first um, device to, to go through NICE, which was, I hadn't realized at the time. Um, and of course, that's a, a, a wonderful uh, um, accolade to, to carry. And we're certainly now, we're the first device of its kind in terms of this type of ECG device. Uh, we're the only device of its kind to carry a nice guidance. So we're very proud of that. It is a real feather in your cap. Uh, and uh, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned about the first application being rejected, because I think it's, it's, it's always good to reflect on lessons learned, especially for anybody listening to this podcast that might actually be you know, trying to go through the process itself. You actually mentioned a bit about there was a need for more data. Is this, am I right in thinking this will be real world evidence data? Yes, pretty much. Uh, and in fact, I went through a similar process with another um, ECG startup that I used to work for. Uh, and the same comments were made for that company. And so they, they are still trying to go through the process at the moment. And it is very much real world data. And in fact, if, if, um, if you go onto the NICE website and you read our guidance, it still says that they want to look more closely specifically at the costing side of things, which is fair enough, because typically uh, the front end focus is all on the clinical aspects. Um, and we have we have over, I think it's probably about 40 published papers, peer reviewed published papers now. So the clinical actually, the clinical data is there. Um, but what was um, and still is for them uh, needed is a more a greater focus on on the costing in terms of implications to the NHS. And of course, this is where NICE has really been a massive boost for us because it got NHS X interested in us. Uh, and consequently, as, as you may have heard, we, we were one of the winners of the AI Awards um, last autumn in 2020. And that really has helped us get our um, our mark out there in the marketplace, if you like, because the funding was made available to uh, accommodate this requirement from NICE. So right now, we are working with about seven NHS trusts uh, where we literally go into the trust. We work very closely with them, with our own team. We have a, a fairly large team that go in and support all each with different uh, resource abilities and knowledge, many of them clinical. Um, and we 
literally redesigned their pathway to accommodate changing to something like ZOX2. And, and they are all very welcome to do this and they, and they, they welcome us in and we, we develop that, we agree it from both sides of the fence before, long before they actually start using the service. And that, that is actually, right, right now, we are already collecting and seeing data coming out of these. They've been running since January, some of them. And so the data is, is collecting and we're seeing some very interesting results coming through, very exciting results. And actually some things that we hadn't even anticipated coming through, which is a real bonus. Um, for example, I can, I can tell you that one of the trusts involved has just recently told us that as a result of introducing Zio, they have therefore been able to reduce the use of um, in, uh, in ILRs, loop recorders, which are very expensive, about £1,500 each, each time they put one in a patient, they've reduced the use of those by about 40%, 40%. And so if you think if, if, a, if a hospital uses, a big, busy hospital uses, say, 500 of those a year, you're, you're, they're saving about a quarter of a million pounds just there. And so, so the, I think the point I'm trying to make here is that the old days of just comparing like for like when you're making a purchasing decision in the NHS, thankfully, are turning more to the total cost of the service. Yeah, I, I was literally about to follow up with a with a point of uh, you, you, it's all well and good having a really good uh, product that might be good in the clinical setting, but th- there is the economics case to to make before before nice as well. Absolutely, and we go to great lengths um, uh, working on a business case with each individual trust, so that we get their personal figures for that trust as they have been operating using the old-fashioned Holter devices. Um, and we find out the costs of each step that, that is involved in taking the patient from the first um, outpatient clinic, if you like, through to a final diagnosis. Uh, and, and we now know that we, we, we're going to be monitoring uh, the actual time to diagnosis now. It, it, can Zio actually reduce that effectively? We hope to actually come up with a positive result for that. But certainly you can put a value on each one of those steps. And you could even look at things like transport, hospital transport, for example, because if you have a uh, an 80 year old lady at home who can't use public transport the only way to get her in to fit a halter device is to send a, um, a hospital ambulance or whatever they use uh, to actually bring her in they fit the device they take her home she maybe wears it for only 24 or 48 hours which is current practice and then they go and collect her again to bring her in take it off and take her home again and one of the frustrations for cardiologists and patients actually for that matter is that it's widely accepted that the um, the amount of analyzable data that you get from the old halter devices is really not great you you may be as low as 50 60 percent of the recorded data that's actually usable uh, and as a result also hand in hand as i said they're they're only typically wearing it for 24 48 hours so a lot of symptoms, a lot of arrhythmic symptoms may not occur until after that period. So the net result, we know that the rough repeat test rate in the NHS is around about 24, 25 percent. 
So if you think of all these patients that are going in for ambulatory ECG testing, if you think a quarter of them are at least having one repeat test. And so once you add up the costs of all that, it's a very different picture. It's uh, You actually uh, touched upon a point that I've heard a, f- a few times that I wasn't necessarily going to bring up, but it, it does feel like the with uh, with nice approval and with the, the, the uh, approach that you've taken that there seems to be a lot of companies heading in the direction of the dr- trying to drive a strategy toward the preventative angle when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to relieving pressures, and whether that be on the economic side of things or whether that's the case of you know looking looking after people in a, in a more remote setting. Well, absolutely, and and uh, you know the NHS. I, I mean, I, I I think the NHS are, are really trying hard to change the way they do things. But as we all know, it's such a massive beast. It's very hard to to make quick changes. Um, but they recognize that really long term, the answer to getting waiting lists down and improving outcomes is actually act in a, a preventative way. Um, but one of the hand in hand with that, and, and this is where AI comes in, in many aspects of, of healthcare um, across the board, is, is that longer term, we'll see far more predictive algorithms coming out. So. I know there are the people working on predictive algorithms for cardiac arrest, or not cardiac arrest, but heart attacks, uh, you know, myocardial infarct. And you sort of think, well, as scary as it might be to the patient, if you could actually wear something that said, hey, you're, you're at risk of having a heart attack any minute, you know, you better get to see a doctor. Um, however, you sort of think, well, if, if that can be done before that event actually occurs, um, the patient's outcome is going to be much better. Um, and also, you, know, you have to consider also the, the costs of, of having that myocardial infarct are far greater than actually a patient going to see their GP and, and being treated um, before it happens. I, th- I think we talked about the, uh, the clinical setting and the effect that it has on the NHS having you know, uh, a, you know, a really strong product with really, really good data and the you know, uh, and the effects, the positive effects it has in that setting. But I'm really keen to focus on what it means for you as a business, because I mean, I know it might sound like an obvious question, but what has the approval meant for the company, and what and what have, what have its effects been? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I think everybody knows now that we have nice approval, um, which is great. I mean, obviously, we we shout about it uh, with all our messaging, and, but but it, it's well known. And I think just at the very simplistic level for clinic clinicians, particularly, it's it's that degree of confidence in the company because they know the the product and the company essentially has been given nice guidance. So they feel, well, if I use this, I know I'm using something I can ultimately trust. Um, not not just the accuracy and reliability of the product or service, but also the company that's behind it. Um, and I think that's very important for clinicians. But I think from, from our side of the fence, particularly, it, it means that we're that one step further towards long-term permanent funding in, in the NHS. And that's everybody's goal, innovators like us, who create new products, new services, 
it, you get nowhere unless there is a method of funding it within the NHS. It, you can sell to the private sector, of course, which is essentially what our initial strategy in the UK was, because there was no route to the NHS initially for us. So we sold to the private sector because we knew many of the cardiologists there, the majority of them, also worked in the NHS. So they got familiar with the product, they learned to trust it and see the quality of the reports, the patient reports that we produce. And of course, then by the time now where we're at today, they, a lot of them are very familiar with Zio, and, and so it has eased or oiled the wheels, if you like, um, to actually take us to the next stage. I, I, I was uh, going to use the, the metaphor that uh, it may have been a starting gun for wi wider wider adoption. Wider adoption, yeah, I, I think it is. And, and the more recognition you can get from the various NHS bodies, the better. I mean, it, it, for a new startup coming into this medtech field, it, it can appear to be an absolute confusing minefield uh, uh, where on earth do you start? Because there are so many different bodies all underneath the umbrella of the NHS. But you sort of think, well, what, who do we talk to? Who's the most important? And, and what can they do to help our, our journey here? And are they interested in what we've got? And so it, it, it is difficult for startups, admittedly. But I think the NHS, as I said earlier, I think the NHS is taking great steps to make that process easier. I mean, for example, I know just recently they've launched um, the multi-agency advisory service, they're called MAAS. And for, when I saw that, I thought this is a great move because when I've been asked previously for, you know, from other startups, what's the most important thing we should do when we're starting out? You say, well, I always say, so make sure you've got your regulatory aspects completely ironed out. And, and get advice on how to do it. And it's clear that, you know, th this new agency, which is a combination of NICE, MHRA, CQC, and the Health Research Authority, um, I, it, that's I, what I see that they want to do and help these guys move forward more quickly. Thank you very much for highlighting that. Um, uh, just to follow up on that, you know, given that if you're a startup and you probably don't know who to come and talk to first because of this because as we've mentioned that the NHS is a beast of an organization if you were to give one piece of advice on who to go and talk to first if you for a startup which direction would you point them in well I would say a, a good a really good place to start is the AHSN the Academic Health Science Network um, which I, I'm sure the listeners will will know of them, but but I in both this company and my previous company that I mentioned, I found them extremely helpful. Um, I mean, they can give you real practical help sometimes, and and at the very least, they will give you lots and lots of advice. And there will be um, an AHSN in your local region, uh, wherever you're based, um, and of course, they they work more closely nationally now as well so they can offer a lot of introductions give advice on which path to go down and sometimes um, give advice about funding that's available that is not necessarily widely known and and so they can say oh have you thought about applying for the such and such fund um, and, and so that can be a, a very useful route yeah uh, this actually follows on uh, this question actually follows on nicely from that because uh, given that you've actually been through the approval process yourself as a company 
uh, for any future technologies and developments you might have, do you feel that having been through the process of first time around, having the, you know, the relationships that you that you've evidently established during that time, do you think that would be beneficial when it comes to future innovations as well as knowledge of the process? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Absolutely. Because as I mentioned to you, we, we got in a, an outside consultant because we didn't have the knowledge. Um, and now we, we have developed these relationships, both in NICE and NHSX, um, that you can't, you can't put a value on that, I don't think, because it, it, it's, you know, next time if we would come out and launch a new product, you think, well, I know exactly where to go and who to go to. Um, and even if that ends up not being the right person, that person is going to tell us who to speak to. And so it, it, I guess there's no avoiding the, the first time you do it, the pain of doing it. Um, but I think once you've pushed through that treacle and you come out the other end, you, you come out thinking that was worth doing um, because now we're established in terms of relationships, the awareness of the company, the brand and the product. Um, and so uh, it, it, it is something you have to do. Um, and I think it's, it's essentially unavoidable. Well, Glenn, thank you very much for taking us through what was an incredibly long process for you in, in, a, in a very quick time. And it just leaves me to, to ask you if you've got anything else that you'd like to add. Uh, well, that's a good point. Um, I think one of the things... That, that struck me recently as we go on to start talking to, to trusts who are outside the NHSX AI award program um, is, is making sure that the offer that you're providing to that trust that you're talking to fits as a value proposition to them. Uh, and I think trusts now have this quite traditional marketing approach, if you like, about what's your value proposition to us? Do you fit what we are trying to achieve? And I think it's quite important that you do a lot of research ahead of that meeting um, to make sure that what you're saying actually does fit, be it get it right first time or any other program, NHS program that happens to be, they're, they're really hot on at the time, try and develop your offering to, to match that. And that's the way you'll get commissioners listening to you. And of course, we haven't talked about price um, because price is always a thorny subject uh, and, and you can't avoid it. And, and for new developers, I always, something else I always say to people is if you are developing a new product for the NHS, make darn sure that it's not so expensive that they just can't afford it. You've got to be an affordable relative to the value. Of course, if it's some unique product uh, that is brand new to the world and is going to save thousands of lives, you have that premium price uh, more available than you would do if you were just another me too. Um, and, and so you can't be a mean too with one or two USPs and say, right, we're charging you double because it won't work. Um, so so I, I think that's, that's one thing I would like to add uh, just at the end as, as a small piece of, uh, um, dare I say, advice. <laughs> to to uh, um, startups that are, are coming along. Well, Glenn, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate the advice that you've given to, to them. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, thank you very, very much for your insight. Thank you. And that has been the Vento Podcast.
This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by Wilmington Healthcare. Wilmington Healthcare helps customers turn high-quality healthcare data into meaningful intelligence that supports their business objectives and the improvement of healthcare. Wilmington Healthcare's trusted, in-depth and compliant data, backed up by world-class delivery platforms and unrivaled UK healthcare expertise, enables NHS supplier organisations to achieve sustainable outcomes and improve competitive advantage. Visit www.wilmingtonhealthcare.com or contact them directly at info at wilmingtonhealthcare.com for more information.